Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, toxic relationships and how to disengage. The children's crusade of the 13th century, not nearly as fun as you might think. Storytime featuring a murder mystery in the midst of the Blitz on London. Some panhandlers may be less than honest. How it always seems to be the other guy's fault. And believe it or not, there are some differences between men and women. Here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows Podcast, begins now. Alrighty. Welcome back, everybody, to another fine episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast, episode 128. They're just stacking up like crazy. Enjoy them while you can, kids. But until that point, across from me sits Daniele Bolelli. What's up? I am working too hard. Yeah, you are. History on fire is kicking my ass. It's fun. It's a lot of work, though. And, um, well, on that note, thank you to our sponsor. Part of the reason why I say on that note is because my brain had been severely taxed by some of the insane stories that I've been researching that involve anything from popes, prime minister, crime families, mafia, banks. My brain hurts. So hand out the stash of alpha brain to me. I need it. Well, empty bottles laying around here. Hand it out in uh, a Datsusara bag while wearing a short design t-shirt and it will be even better. Check, check, check. Datsusara, by the way, has the new um, hemp gear for dogs. So if you have a dog, you know, like leash and harness and that kind of stuff. So if you have dogs, check it out. I haven't had a chance to check it yet, but why not? That sounds like a cool idea. I'm still waiting for the hemp. Toilet paper and paper towels. When that moment strikes, we know we are a green country. Yes, that's when it's going to happen. Uh, hemp is still uh, expensive right now, so good luck for toilet paper. But a um, couple of shout-outs, too. Uh, one I mentioned in the past, mention again. friend of mine is an MMA gym in uh, downtown LA or somewhere close to downtown. Can't remember where the hell it is. In any case, if you are in LA, you want to try jujitsu, Muay Thai, MMA, whatever you want, check out the link in the episode notes. He will give you a discount for signing up if you mention the Drunken Taoist. So again, LA, martial arts, put two and two together. That's an option. I also want to say a big, huge thank you to the guys from NeverTapGear.com. They make... Well, they're going to make a lot more products. Right now, they're making they're focusing primarily on knee guards for people who uh, roll jiu-jitsu. Knees are, knees are always, you know, one of the banes of jiu-jitsu is that knees are not happy a lot of the time because you are bending in all sorts of weird directions. I just popped my knee three times in a span of two months. I'm not a happy camper about that. And so Does I that came... have something to do with the other fella trying to tear it out of your leg? Nope. That's purely movement. Uh, I mean, the first one was where I did it, and then the other ones now is kind of in a delicate situation. So as that happened, I got this email from the guys from nevertapgear.com, and they do make knee guards that seem perfect to wear while rolling. They're also going to make some heavier-duty ones, too, if you are injured like me. Like, the ones that they make right now, they are perfect for anybody who is there just want to prevent injuries or has milder injuries going on. They will have heavier-duty kind of stuff coming up soon. They will have also elbow gear. They will have all the good joints that you want to keep in one piece while still doing jiu-jitsu. Check these guys out. I'll put a link in the episode notes. And thank them so much for sending a bunch of products to Savannah that is great having said that let's jump into this episode 
brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, gather around. Professor Bellelli is going to now give us more incredible instruction on the deconstruction of the Holy Bible, which I just saw yesterday that the uh, fine evangelical folks um, aren't worried about our president's actions. They're willing to give him a pass on all his uh, philandering and triple marriages and concealed owning and robbing and being a bad dude because they're giving them their way. Isn't that very Jesus-y? That's exactly what Jesus would tell you to do. Yeah. Take advantage. Get what you can. And then, you know, they'll drop them like a hot potato once the whole country's like the handmaiden's tail. So it's going to be fun. On the Jesus tales, um, this is a Jesus story from the 1200s. So right off the bat, he's like, wait, time out. What? So we're not doing Bible today, but we are going into... uh, Exactly. More fan fiction. Yeah. There's a lot of debate among historians on whether what exactly really happened in this story, what's the legend, what's the history. Very complicated. There's lots of writings on this tale, which for just foreshadowing of what we're talking about, will be known as the Children's Crusade. Oh, man. And the Children's Crusade, so there's a lot of evidence that something did happen, but of course a lot of the details, a lot of the stories are so wild and weird that who knows what the what part is history and what part is fiction. The year was the year 1212, and the way the story goes is that it starts out with one particular shepherd boy in France by the name of Stephen who said that one day a tall stranger shows up, they start chit-chatting, takes him a while to realize, you know, while they are there hanging out by the sheep and stuff, takes him a while to realize that the tall stranger is Jesus. Right there in 1212. In 1212, who came to deliver a message. The message being... You know, how many, this has been now well over a hundred years since we started the Crusades, and they keep failing and failing and failing, and that's because most of the Crusaders are just low-life motherfuckers. I'm not entirely sure that's the word Jesus uses, but something along those lines. You know, basically, (laughs) when you read that the history of the Crusades, there are a bunch of times where it's like, let's go save the Holy Land. Oh, wait, the Holy Land is too far. Can we just kill some Jews over here and be done with it? Or let's go save the Holy Land. And then they get, hey, can we hire you guys to kill some of our enemies over here? Sure, no problem. Because Turkey is a long way away. So there's a lot of nasty stuff that happened in the course of the Crusades. Not even the actual, you know, the actual nastiness of the Muslim uh, Christian fights, but side quests along the way that seem to betray the holiness of the mission. And so Jesus sees at it and say, look, the Crusaders have been terrible. They are not very good people. So for the Crusades to be successful, what we need is some pure Crusaders, Crusaders who have good spirit, hence children. Children will be the purest of the pure. They, we need them. They will need to take care of it. Really? You guys, you start preaching, gather a bunch of them, head to the coast. At that point, I will part the waters for you so you guys can just walk all the way to the Holy Land. And when you get there, the Muslims there will see the nobility of your spirit and uh, how faithful and pure you are, and it will all convert on the spot. So this is going to be the most successful of all crusades, and it's going to happen without spilling one drop of blood. All right, we're in. Because all the Muslims are going to convert once they see this. So good old Stephen (laughs) says, hey, that's an awesome plan. He goes to the closest local town, St. Denis, St. Denis was the city where many people came in pilgrimage for visiting the remains of the original St. Denis. Was, this deserves a slight side story because St. Denis was supposed to be a Christian preacher from the 3rd century, who was martyred when uh, people who were not too fond of the expansion of Christianity had his head cut off. So but, much for that. But so far, <laughs> this is where the story gets interesting. After they chop off his head, the tale of St. Denis is that his body pick up the head and then goes walking for a few miles, all the while while preaching a sermon with his severed head in his hand. Wow. So, yeah, if you can pull that off, I think you can become a saint. That seems legit. So, in any case, end of the side quest of St. Denis. 
the um, Stephen goes to the town of St. Denis and starts attracting lots of followers. Uh, lots of people start saying, yes, this is the message we've been waiting for. Similar thing, probably because he heard from it, or maybe Jesus was just touring the countryside. And uh, another kid, a guy named Nicholas in Germany, who received basically the exact same message as Stephen, right? Either that or there was somebody dressed like Jesus who was engaged in the medieval version of Jackass and like tried to, you know, <laughs> let's see how many people we can prank with this. Yes, <laughs> that's also a possibility. So between Nicholas and uh, Stephen, they gather supposedly thousands of disciples, all under 12 years old. The kings of France and Germany, when they hear of it, they're like, are you guys insane? Yeah, that's just dumb. That's a stupid plan. Yeah, they're not going to last long. But supposedly some 30,000 kids start joining either one of these movements and begin to make their way. Uh, the German contingents start going when they want to go into Italy and then from there to the Holy Land. The French are going to just make their way down to the French southern coast and from there the sea will part and they will walk to the Holy Land. Surely. So things get a little rough because the crossing of the Alps, a bunch of people freeze. Um, many of them, you know, you have a bunch of kids packed together for days with limited supplies. Supplies would be an issue. That would be an issue. Kids are nasty too. Let's just tell the truth. They are petri dish for microbes and germs. Uh, so diseases start spreading left and right, killing a whole bunch. So... In the, the end, nine of them arrive. The sense <laughs> is that about two-thirds of them die along the way crossing the Alps. Wow. So that's not going super well. In the meantime, the other side, Stephen and these guys arrive in a town in southern France. And so on the appointed day, Stephen goes on on the beach, start praying, and the sea does not part. What? So a few of them feel bummed out. They start going home. But Stephen is like, God will send us a message. We need to keep waiting. Two merchants arrive, offering, we have a bunch of ships, and this is such a holy quest. We are going to give you free passage to anyone who wants. We'll take you to the Holy Land. So supposedly seven ships packed with 700 kids each leave France. Two of them, Jesus didn't like them very much because they just get caught in a storm and they crash, killing all 1,400 kids between those two ships on the coast of Sardinia. So, okay. Those guys sucked. There's the other 500, the other five ships. So the tale goes that those didn't get to the Holy Land either. They did arrive on land, but they arrived in Tunisia. Whoops. Where the two merchants promptly sold them as slaves to the local people there. At least the 10 they didn't keep <clears throat> for their own quarters. Correct. At the same time, Nicholas and these guys arrived in the Italian city of Genoa, waited for the sea to part, he did not part. What? Some more ran into hard times in Italy. A few of them managed to go to southern Italy to Brindisi, where these guys say, we don't need to take them to Tunisia to sell them into slavery. We can enslave them ourselves. <laughs> so there's that. A few do get on boarding ships for the Holy Land. They're never heard from again. The Pope finally has a visit with this Nicholas guy and says, look, just go home. You know, sweet, it was a nice idea. Now you guys can go home. And amazingly, this guy turned around and they decide to go home at this point. Well, I'm sure it's probably time to go see mom. I mean, yeah, this Nic has been fun and all, but... Nicholas doesn't get to do it because he dies during the trip back, doesn't <laughs> make it back through the Alps. His father, back home, got hanged by angry neighbors who sent their kids on the quest following Nicholas, and they don't come back, so they're not too happy with that. Now, let's unpack. There's a theory... I mean, there is evidence that something happened, Okay. Many historians argue that children crusade is mis like is kind of a misnomer because it's only later that the references start emphasizing age. The term children, they say many cases back then, it's kind of like the same way in during slavery time. You would have the guy saying, hey, boy, you could be a 90-year-old dude and you'd still be a boy. The term children was often used for like the poorest of the poor. They were, it was kind of like a put down. So... 
Some people speculate that there were popular movements of very poor people who did uh, try to join some kind of a holy mission. These guys were on the, like, in many cases, kind of roaming from village to village anyway. Better than hanging out here. And this gives very good excuse to ask for money because it's like, hey, you're on a crusade and stuff. So who knows? Maybe mix of true belief, maybe mix of not having too many options. In any case, some people cast doubts that this was truly 30,000 children. Like, there may have been a bunch of kids, but not just. In either case, something happened, miserably failed, end of the tale. And look who gets the blame. Yeah. Jesus. Of course. It is like, yeah, this could have been just a great trolling operation. I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, the Children's Crusade is just, it's not even... It's just a sad story, you know, <laughs> these guys who are like, hey, why is the sea not parting? Hey, we're going to the ships. Why are they selling us into slavery? Why? It's like, if any of this is true, and again, historians are not entirely sure because legend and history are mixed to a degree that it's hard to separate the two. Yeah, this is... Uh... You know, that might have been an easier way to go because what was going to happen when they rolled up on one of these caliphates somewhere? That yeah, they've been that wasn't sharpening their scimitars for 16 years waiting for the next wave. That wasn't going to go well either. So, <laughs> yeah, that's the tale of uh, the Children's Crusade. See, now how much so they ask for money to get their, their activities rolling. Right. I'm starting to worry about the guys always asking me for a dollar for the liver transplant for his great-grandmother at the street corner. Maybe he not. may not be telling the truth either. Yeah. And in these, at least, at least in your story, you don't have probably Jesus sitting on the side laughing, thinking, that was such a funny joke, man. Can you believe what we got them doing? No, suckers will believe anything. Yeah, that was fun. So, yes. So says the Lord. It's ranting time. Do you have something to rant about? Yes. Let's uh, let's be Taoist. Let's oh. look at a couple of issues through Taoist lenses. So it is one of the things that drives me insane about arguments that people have back and forth. I'll pick on a random. It could be any of them, really, because they are all the same dynamics. But let's pick one. There's the classic debate that you hear about the differences between men and women. Right, that some people tend to emphasize the there are no differences. Men and women are the same. They can do the same stuff. They can, and part of the reason why does it happen? It's because for so long, when biological differences were emphasized, it became uh, it was usually used to deny lots of rights to women and opportunities and stuff like that. So what's the solution? Well, we just deny any kind of biological difference. We argue that they are exactly the same, then you can't make the... If they are exactly the same, you can't use biological difference as a, as a tool to restrict women's rights. Makes sense, except that there's the obvious biological problem that, guess what, there are differences. There are differences. Yes. That's what makes it so nice. So, you know, I get why they say it, yes. but it's just not true. You know, of course there are differences. On the other side of the equation, you have the people who like to emphasize the difference, but the problem is that in many, many cases, it becomes a covert way to try to argue that basically biology determines who you are, your choices, your worldview, what you should and shouldn't be doing, you know, and then taken one step further become the... Of course, there should be no women allowed in filling the blanks. I mean, even things like modern debates, right? Like women in the military... Many people argue, no, because of biological things, women should not be in the military, blah, 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 blah. And, or no woman can be stronger than a man, that kind of stuff, right? And A, yes, of course, there are differences, but there are plenty of exceptions. So this whole argument that because there are differences between men and women, that it means that no woman should get into this field there are super strong women, there are weak guys, there are women where there's so much variation that trying to apply this one 
black and white view to all men and all women is just painfully stupid. And it's not denying that there are differences between women and women, but it is denying to imply that that determines every single individual destiny as a result of that. That's where there's a problem. So, you know, when you think about it, it's really not that difficult of a theme. You know, you can say, yes, there are, you know, there are differences. Yes. No, those differences shouldn't be used to shut down opportunities for individuals. Not exactly genius, you know. It doesn't take a, a ultra genius no, to they, figure that out. They were using that, especially like even like in the fifties and the sixties. I'm watching a show right now about uh, Nora Ephron's first jobs, mm -hmm. where she was working for Newsweek. The women would do all the research, hand it up to the men to type up, mm -hmm. and they weren't allowed to have bylines of their own. I mean, this was the sixties, right? What a great way to keep people in their place. When well, a woman couldn't possibly write a story. So what she did is she wrote a story and slipped it in under the writer that she was doing the research for. Of course. And while the guy was reading it, while the, the, the publisher was reading it, he's like, oh, that's not mine. I didn't write that. Like an idiot. Yeah. After he got done praising, this is what we need. Right. And she's like, I wrote it. And he's like, well, women can't be writers, so we'll have to have somebody go over that for you. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is just a strategy. It's used on so many levels, and it can also, you know, racially, the same thing, I think. And that's what I mean. It's like, it doesn't take a genius to figure no, out. Because, I figured it out. You know, so that should tell you right there. The reaction of then we should just deny biology that no biological. It's come on, man. That's just stupid. Yes, that's just a weak that argument. Don't do any good either. No. And so it's like it really is not a very complicated proposition to argue this is true. But at the same time, this is also it's not complicated. But somehow instead what you find is that most people love to hold on to some dogmatic stances and take them way too far rather than just acknowledging the yin yanginess of it all which is would be pretty simple do you think it had especially in that era a lot of blowback from the ladies built all the bombers in world war ii and as the guys came back from the war they had to have some strategy to get them back out of the factory and I mean, in some sense, it goes back to that the way so many people use identity as a crutch for the fact that they got nothing going on themselves. Yeah. So your national identity is like, you haven't done any of the things you are proud of. That's somebody else did them. You have nothing, you know, you carry the same passport. Good for you. That means shit. Yeah. Or men and women or any kind of like these large group identities where you try to claim a sense of this is what makes me me where it's part of what makes you 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 know your gender sure it helps push you in certain direction or another where you're born helps push in certain but those are you know very vague influences who you are as an individual is not determined by any of these things it's and so i think all of that kind of when people are grasping for identity in that direction is because you're really grasping for straws where you're at the end of your rope. And that's my feel for it anyway. Well, especially in sort of dark times when you look at our leadership, always mm -hmm. seems to be 31 white guys that are rich sitting in a room making decisions for everybody else. And you could see that people were tired of that, especially last weekend at the, and at the Women's March, that these are, are capable women that aren't going to stand for it anymore. And I think our, our country stands to gain from it after we make our way through the messy part of uh, reorganization. The thing that's funny, though, is that when then that breaks down and it's like, oh, great. Now we don't have some uh, old, rich, white fascist pushing things. Now we have some uh, young black woman who's a fascist pushing things. You know, it's like that shit sometimes is like, when you think it's like, oh, that solves the problem, then it goes back to, yeah, there's still the problem of human stupidity. That there is, uh, you know, it's kind of like, remember when during the Bush administration, you had the old, uh, you know, the Condoleezza Rice, the Clarence Thomas, the Colin Powell, drumming up all the stuff. You know, it's like, yeah, thanks. I'm glad you are. Or even Obama himself is like the difference with the past is like, dude, you're another politician. So you just happen to be black. That's nice that it's possible for a black guy to be elected. But I'm not exactly thrilled. Like that in itself doesn't make you different. You know, what makes you different then is who you are as an individual, you know. 
And, uh, but yeah, I totally agree that when it's so, like I was using this as a joke, but not really. Like I was talking, I did the History on Fire episode about Game of Thrones. And, uh, you know, one of my standard line used to be Game of Thrones is exactly like history minus the dragons and the White Walkers. But of course, after watching in 2016 Images of the Republican Convention, I had to, you know, Game of Thrones is just like history minus the dragons because the White Walkers, I see plenty of that. (laughs) I mean, yeah, when you see stuff like that where everybody's white, you're like, yeah, that's a little weird. But then again, just because you throw a flash of color, you throw a difference in gender, you know, when you see, I forgot what, what's that girl's name? There's like some young blonde girl who has this oh, super... T- T- Tommy... Lawrence something. I didn't, yeah, didn't it's like, care for her. Yeah, the fact that you're a woman doesn't make me feel a lot better about the fact that no, you're a Your dumbass. hate comes yeah, out just exactly. as well. So it's, it's a little more focused. Yeah, there's that problem. But, okay, switching gears... Actually, switching gears, I need to turn off the oven. Oh. So then. Uh, I'll sing a little song. Now the oven's off. The oven is off. Switching gears. You know how we have used. We've used this concept a few times the idea of turning what can be hostile relationships into cooperative relationships. It is a different way of looking at it that I was thinking of. When it comes to toxic relationships, relationships that clearly lead to a bad interaction, where whether it's in a romantic relationship or you are really bad for one another, or whether it is, it can be something as mild as you are on Facebook and you are constantly arguing with the same people over and over, back and forth. Those are toxic relationships. You know, you are wasting your fucking time you're wasting your energy, you are, you know, and the typical thing that happens is that people play the blame game, you know, this relationship is not working because you did this and this and you are a mess and blah, 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 or, uh, you know, there's always this is the other guy's fault. And, you know, the thing is, well, here is the problem. Everybody thinks that it's the other guy's fault. Now, some of them may be right, in some cases, it is the other guy's fault, but so fucking what? There's a point where sitting back and being right doesn't really help anybody. So how do you turn it into a cooperative one? I mean, this is clearly a relationship that's toxic, that's hostile, that's constantly leading to nasty things. Well, that realization in itself can help turn the switch in the sense that recognize that you are allies, in not wanting to waste any more of your life. It's kind of like, okay, let's figure out a strategy to mutually disengage here. You know, I'm not even pointing things. I, I think you're a dumbass. You think I'm a dumbass. Who cares? Let's not even go there because we're never going to agree on that. So do we agree that what we are doing to each other is a waste of time and energy, that it's bad vibes, that there's nothing good is coming out of it, that we're just yelling at each other? So we could spend, you know, we could be here. The same time and energy could be used uh, in other contexts elsewhere. We, this very moment, you could be giving or receiving orgasm. You could write the greatest book on the planet, or at least you could read the damn greatest book on the planet. You could be taking steps toward uh, developing a stronger, healthier body. You could learn how to garden. You could. There are 10,000 things you could be doing with your time and energy, and instead we are here but I got to prove this asshole wrong. Don't exactly. you understand? And you're he must be here, defeated. Right. And we're here yelling at each other and creating more bad vibes. Why are we going to spend that time and energy in an interaction that has proven to be fruitless time and time again? You know, the evidence doesn't lie. We keep bouncing the head. And again, who cares whose fault it is? Okay, we're past that. That's like, we're never going to agree anyway. How about we figure out how you can go on your merry way and have time and energy to enjoy in whatever fucking way you want. I can do the same thing. Let's break this off, right? So not even a search for common ground, just see you later. There's no need. I mean, the search for common ground is you want to be happy. I want to be happy. Yeah. It's not happening when we're in the same room. Well, that's it's, because I want you dead. Right. That <laughs> would make me happy. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Well, goddamn. 
So it's uh, tough luck. So let's go to step two. How, how do we disengage from something where we're both plugged into the scene that requires us to just get the wars out of us out and just bad vibes all along? Because, And, you know, even in a relationship, so often when people break up, they spend their time yelling at each other about, it was your fault, this could have worked great if it wasn't for you. Ooh. I mean, get it out of your system once, okay? You really need to go through the list of why the other person was wrong. That's going to upset the other person. That's fine. They get it out. They They're yell back, back at their you, list. of course. Just cruelty. If you really need to, you know, and sometimes you do need that kind of closure. You need to say it for how you feel it. Do it once. Once that's done, and people always usually then they make up and they start a fight again and they make up and they start a fight and it happens for months or years or forever. But if you unload all the grievances, they ain't gonna be no more talking. That'll be that. Yeah. If you really people are amazing <laughs> at finding their way back in the most toxic relationships. Because it's easy, because it's there, because it's comfortable. And in fact, and instead the thing should be like, you know what? I'm not arguing about any of that. You know, maybe I disagree with your analysis. You're right. I should put the toothpaste lid back on more often. But let's assume that you're right. The point is I'm not making you happy. You're not making me happy. Time to go. We're making each other miserable. You want to be happy. I want, you, I want me to be happy. And maybe in an ideal world, I even want you to be happy. Yeah. And maybe in an ideal world, you want me. Maybe not. But at the very least... We are both stuck in a shitty thing where we could both be in a much better one. Let's figure out a way to hey, let's have a we have this common ground. Let's disengage without murder. That seemed like we have a common purpose there. We 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 agree on that topic, right? We agree on that course of action. Let's work on it together. Stop engaging me back. I'm stopping engaging you. I'm not commenting on anything you say do the same step away and that seems even in that context when you hate each other's guts there is that possibility of turning that hostile one into a cooperative one not in a cooperative that you're going to be best friend forever or that is going to work out just purely in putting an end to something that's mutual destruction you know, it's kind of like if even the U.S. and the Soviet Union can agree not to bomb each other when they hate each other's guts, I think there's something to be applied there in that image, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like we're not going to see eye to eye. We don't like each other. But, you know, in the time being, let's focus on the good stuff that we can, that we can get out of this. And so began the breakup wave that swept America. That's the way to do it. And everybody was happier. Yeah. Yeah, I stand like I was seeing it on uh, Facebook discussions where people sometimes just they go on forever with the same people over and over again. And I'm like, yeah. dude, was it not clear about seven hours ago that you're never going to see eye to eye? You're not going to convince them. They're not going to convince you. Nobody's going to see the light. It's just going to get uglier and uglier. I don't get it. Just stop. Say your stop. piece. It's step like, away. Done. It's Someone like, is going to come along and shit on it. You've got to know that. It's almost like it's what they're looking forward to. It's like, okay, we are not going to see eye to eye. Bye. Done. Yeah. Over. In any case. So that's one way to turn ugliness into something productive, which is never a bad idea. This is a re-record because apparently I pressed the wrong button a few weeks back. It happens. But it, the numbers are clicking. The meters are jiggling. So I think this one will stick. Let's try. Let's find out. <laughs> so these are about Isabella's relationship with authority. We're watching a movie and in that movie she heard the classic line, you live under my roof. You have to obey my rules. She turned to me and was like, would you ever say that to me? And I was like, no, that's really not my style. I really wouldn't say that. And he was like, good, because if you ever said that to me, I would literally fight to kill you. Hmm. 
I was like, okay, well, we don't have to worry about that, but I actually kind of agree with you on that one. That is a shit line to use. I don't dig it. The other one in relation to authority. Give it a few um, years. We got. Uh, <laughs> Wait till Snake with all the tattoos shows up for a date. There'll be a whole different story on that one. Is it? Well, but at that point, you've already failed. There's really not much you can. Uh, you might as well say. Just a little bit of guidance, possibly. Uh, Hail Mary. Yeah, but I think that's the problem <laughs> that you live under my roof, you have to obey my rules, is you're admitting defeat. You're done. You're just appealing to some kind of authority that clearly you don't have anymore. No, we <laughs> never so had in the first place. That's yeah, the worst part. So that's where things are like <laughs> you, are, you are raising a white flag already. And, and rather than doing it in an honorable way, you're desperately trying to hold on to something that you don't have. So it's like, come on, just admit <laughs> defeat already and be done, you know. The the other one that was interesting is um, we got a new car. Well, not really a new used car, but still something different. And when Isabella got into it, and there was a little more room than the previous. Well, the previous car was fucking ridiculously tiny. There was a seat for her that was about the size of my laptop, so that was a little. So there was more space, and their first comment was like, "This is great. There's even more room to hide from the police." So, yes. I'm 100% behind that comment. That's where it's at. That's why I have the cop invisibility grandpa car now. Yeah. They can't see it. I know. 85 miles now, they can't see it. Never get the red one. No. The red one is death. That's (laughs) when you get busted for driving 25 in a 25. Especially when you don't have your plates up to date. Yeah, red cars are death. But they're cool. I like them. But... Well, story time, everybody! Brought to you by Sure Design t shirts, happy nipples for a happy planet! This is gonna be a dark one. Well, yeah. A lot of stories. Yesterday I got uh, an email from Daryl Cooper from Martyr Made Podcast. And because we're going to work on an episode together and on his half of the episode, I guess his message was like, man, this is getting, how hard am I allowed to go on this? Because this is getting really dark. And, uh, you know, my response, of course, was uh, my text back was, hello, darkness, my old friend. Because, you know, it's like, eh, what do you expect? It's doing something of Milai Massacre. I'm not exactly expecting something cheerful no, and Disney-fied. No, that's not going to be a fun story so, at all. This is an interesting one because, okay, so here is the context. Context is World War II. Uh, it's not a war story, but it is happening in the middle of the war. It's World War II in England after the Nazis had conquered you know, after Poland fell, they quickly moved in and basically conquered all of Western Europe, except for Spain and Italy, were either explicitly allied or they were at least friendly to them. So the Nazis are kicking ass left and right. The only thing that's left is the UK in Western Europe. And the only reason why they are still around is because they are an island and they're not that easy to invade by land. So Hitler decided to just start bombing the living hell out of them. The idea being, you know, if we kill enough people, we'll massacre enough civilians. These guys will be suing for peace soon. They will be begging us to stop and we win that way. So the blitz start with, you know, all in all, the Nazis are going to drop some 50,000 tons of bombs over London and surrounding countryside, killing well over 40,000 civilians. It's kind of a big deal. Over the entire blitz, though, but like originally the Nazis were like, we're going to kill 50,000 people a day. Yeah, yeah. Sort of dire warning at the front of it. Yeah, they were uh, slightly over ambitious. They didn't quite pull that off. But nonetheless, the point is, Hitler gets a bad surprise, though, because he thought they would break quickly. They don't. And the image that England will project is, you know, toughness, British cheerfulness in the face of the bombing. We will resist anything you dish out. And that it's not like that wasn't true. That was true. There was a lot of heroism. There was a lot of amazing stuff that came out from the people who were on the receiving end of the bombing. 
they were some tough motherfuckers out there, and they really did some amazing stuff. Oh, really? I mean, they go into the shelters all night long and then head off to work in the morning just exactly. like nothing had gone on. It was incredible. On the other hand, the problem was in order to give less visibility to German bombers and not just putting a big, bright flashing light next to the targets, of course, all lights would be turned off at night. Guess what happens when you have a city in full blackout mode? Uh, usually you tend to see an increase in crime. And so, not surprisingly, crime increased actually by 50%. See, I was going to go for period. birth rates with skyrocket. I'm cause... sure that may be part of a different story, but this one is definitely part of what's going on. So, despite the, yes, the Blitz brought some of the best in British people, also brought out some of the worst. And you see dramatic increase in crime, uh, black market, you know, people stealing and looting left and right, black market thriving. In the years after that, it's estimated that well over 100,000 people will be prosecuted for uh, black market kind of activities and thefts and recycling stolen merchandising and all of that, right? So there's that. Oh, one of my favorite is people who had issues with other people would promptly kill them and then dump their bodies on, where, a, bomb site. on a bomb site said, hey, clearly they must have been died in the bomb. It was like a rock dropped right on his head. You How know, about that? There were a lot <laughs> less cops because so many people were recruited into the army or the air force. So, you know, blackout, less cops. That's what's up. But, you know, this kind of looting and robbing and stuff, it's bad, but not nearly as bad as our story. Oh, that was just a warm-up. That was completely warm-up, like barely even getting your toes in. This is where things get ugly when uh, it starts out with this lady, Evelyn Hamilton, who arrived in London for a new job. She was about 40 years old at this time. She got a new job there. And on February 9th, 1942, her remains are found in an air shelter. She had been strangled during the night before. And... You know, it shows some of the telltale signs of somebody who's uh, mixing murder with probable rape and things like that. So something ugly going on. But okay, it's one case. It's ugly. Whatever. Problem is, next day, another lady showing similar sign is found with her throat cut. She was a prostitute. Street prostitution, by the way, was legal at this time in London. Um... And this lady, I mean, I don't want to get into details because it gets ugly, but pretty ugly things were done to her body. Hopefully post-mortem, but who knows. But in any case, second that lady in two days, showing signs that probably the same guy is behind both murders. Uh, well, it's Jack the Ripper, of course. In fact, they did quickly the London newspapers will rename him the Blackout Ripper. Signs show that both murders were done by somebody who was left-handed, so that's, uh, but you know, you can't exactly go around and arrest every left-handed person in London, so they don't have a whole lot to go on yet here. It's like, the problem is that this guy is on a roll. You know, most serial killers, they strike, they have that build-up process again where suddenly they feel the urge and off they go again, and, it, you know, time goes by. This guy is on a full-time serial killer mode. He's going out every single night. So, however, on day three, he strikes out, he messes up in the sense that he approaches a 32-year-old lady in a restaurant. She was there waiting for her boyfriend. Apparently, our Blackout Reaper was a very good-looking guy and a smooth talker. So he managed to convince her at least to step out of the restaurant. When they step out, he tries to offer her money for prostitution and she refused he started coming on to her in a much more aggressive fashion. She's kind of, hey, what the hell are you doing kind of thing. So he starts choking her out. Just as she passes out and, you know, step one on her way to getting killed by strangulation, somebody heard the noise because this was happening in somebody's like front yard or something. Shine a light. He's like, hey, what the hell is going on? And so this dude runs off, drops her now unconscious body, but still alive and run off, leaving behind the clue that we're going to go back to in a little bit, which will lead to 
having a better idea that this is not just some random left-handed guy, but we'll have a little more on who this guy is. But he's not done for the night because, you know, he's 0 for 1 and he's rather mad now for tonight. So he finds another street prostitute. They go to her place. But when he tries to clarify that he's not just there for sex, but he's there to kill her, she promptly starts kicking the living hell out of him with her high-heeled boots, starts screaming bloody murder. The guy freaks out, ran off again. Just wasn't his night. No, it wasn't his night. So he's 0 for 2 and he's super mad. Find in attempt number three, he finds another prostitute. Incidentally, some this lady was a bit different. She was more of a bored housewife who didn't really need the money. She was doing it more for thrills. <laughs> and she had done it for a while, but tonight doesn't work well. And the husband came back home uh, the next morning after his uh, work duty and found her strangled. And again, ugly things being done to her body. So when you put it all together, now we have... Um, Five attacks in three nights. So yeah, on attack number... Yeah, I lost count by now. Another lady, and this is the saddest one, because she was a 43-year-old prostitute working the streets to pay for her 15-year-old daughter's boarding school. She was a widow, had no money, turned to prostitution for that. She was approached by our usual handsome, polite man, left with him, no one saw her alive again. So, again, this guy's nuts. He's like going one night after another after another, just killing every single day. But here is where things get start unra unraveling for him. Well, they probably unraveled in his head long before this, but, you know, <laughs> where his uh, murder spree start dying out. The two ladies he didn't kill, whom he assaulted but didn't manage to kill, had gone to the police telling them what had happened. And the first one, the one he had approached in the restaurant, brought this item he had left behind when he ran off, which was an, airman, an airman's gas mask, somebody from the Royal Air Force who had left behind. And to make the whole thing better, inside the gas mask, there's the serial number that can be tied to a very specific individual. So the cops go, okay, now we got something. So they go look for this guy by the name of Gordon Cummings. He had been rising quickly into the Royal Air Force. He had been in the Royal Air Force for six years by now. He was married, known as a womanizer, but married and all of it. When the cops go there in his quarters in the barracks, they find objects that were taken from every single one of the women who were killed. Trophies. And guess what was going with him? He was left-handed. So... You know, the evidence to add the things, because just in case we don't have enough evidence, they also find a fingerprint match. Fingerprinting was becoming more popular at this time. And the guy on the case was like the top-notch fingerprint expert in all of the UK. And he's like, yeah, that's the same guy. The lawyer for this dude, because the guy kept denying, 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 saying that he was innocent. Exactly. The lawyer said, come on, they're open barracks. Anybody could have grabbed the mask. You know, it's, uh, anybody could have placed every single one of the item in his spot. Everyone could have made him left-handed. Uh, I meant uh, something, something. You know, it's like, obviously, the defense didn't hold. Plus, the killing probably stopped the day they put him in jail. Promptly. And it definitely stopped when in June 1942, because this guy's didn't mess around for a long time on appeals and counter appeals, they decided to hang him. <laughs> so off Mr. Gordon Cummings go at the end of a rope. Um, the thing, there are a couple of things about this story that are really weird. One is that makes you wonder what the hell just happened? You know, what goes from this guy being some married womanizer to becoming super proactive serial killer? What snapped in his head? I mean, the opportunity was there, okay? There was the blackout and all of that. But did he never think it before? Did he, how does he go from never doing that to start doing that every single day for a few days? What well, set him off? And of course, we don't know. Right. There's the well, there's one story that supposedly before killing the first lady, he had an <clears throat> unpleasant encounter with a prostitute because he had drank too much and just couldn't pull it off. But 
from that to murdering five women in the space of a, that seems a bit of a jump, you know. It's a bit of overreaction. Just a tad. That would be a great ad for Viagra, by the way. It's like, you don't want to become a murderer or serial killer. Take Viagra and you'll never have to worry about this. Or perhaps the wife had been cruel to him previously and uh, that's why he was driven to the prostitutes and he had had enough of her. Well, we, you just can't fuck me, so why don't you get out of the house? And we, then he went to the prostitute and it didn't work again. And that was it. Snap. Well, the thing is, he, so never, conf- he never confessed, right? <laughs> so he went to the gallows, keep saying he's innocent, even though the evidence was overwhelming against him. So because he never confessed, there was never the, hey, this is why I did it or this is what happened. We have absolutely blank slate there. We have no idea. So we, everybody can project whatever they want on the case because we don't know. So that's one thing. And the other one is that it's interesting how during the Blitz, which is the time, you know, it's such a famous historical event. Yeah. You hear about it all the time and it's all, the Blitz is primarily remembered for the toughness of British people in how they handled it and how they responded. And again, all true, but clearly as this story tells, there was a much darker side. I mean, this would make a hell of a movie, you know, it's like serial killer in the middle of a ble- of the Blitz on London. That's quite a setting right there but so that's the tale well it's really surprising because uh just having read the uh the tribe book by mm-hmm. mr unger yep um they say they claim that the people were happier during the blitz that the esprit de corps and the measurement of happiness and sort of how it didn't really matter what your class was anymore. Everybody was surviving together that, uh, they were actually happier while the blitz was going down than they were in the fifties when the war was over. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, I think again, don't get me wrong. I do think that is based on some reality. Yeah. At the same time, I think there was also a lot of propaganda because I think part of what the British were trying to do, uh, very understandably. So was trying to show Hitler, nothing you're doing is affecting us. You bomb us, we smile, you know. It was the same thing in Sarajevo, though. They and had of the course, same sort of approach that, you know, this at least we're all in it together and people talked and laughed more. And in fact, to some degree, I'm sure, and again, it's one of the things that rarely things just go in one direction. Sure. There was probably that reaction and there was probably the, there's a blackout, let's go rob our neighbors because we're not going to get oh, busted or murder five ladies. You know, that's... That also happened. And of course, that's the part that you talk about less because A, is slightly less inspiring about human nature. B, definitely you didn't want to publicize it in the war because that would give Germans the sense of, hey, it's working. What you're doing is having some effect. But in any case, the teal of the blackout reaper, I see that as some strange horror movie. Um, I mean, this is made for movies, right? This is just a kind of heavy, nasty story. In the context of the Blitz is what makes it the most interesting in that regard. Ah, the funky music means one thing, and that's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Towers podcast, and goddamn aren't you lucky to get to hear it. So, real quick, kiva.org, this is your moment to jump in. 100,000 is going to be broken in the next few weeks of the fine listeners that have joined in and want to do well by other people. An incredible, an incredible feat. You know, if we can get 100,000, we can get a quarter million. So, let's keep plugging at it, and I invite you to come join us, Team Drunken Towers, kiva.org. If you want more information, send me a little note because I will email you back what you need to do to get involved. And uh, that actually is a pretty exciting example of what can be done when uh, fine folks work towards the same goal. Not a bad gig right there. A couple of quick thank you. Thank you to Daisy House for letting us use their music. That has always been sweet. Let's screw up a few people's names. Let the pottering begin. So, donations for this month. We got Samuel McNichol, Thomas Robinson, Aaron Wisner, or Wisner, not sure, Lisa Robles, Jim D'Amico, and Matt Chebre. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. 
Uh, thank you, of course, to our trifecta of sponsors on it short design t-shirts and datsusara you guys know the gear the links are in the episode notes their products are awesome we are probably not eating it now for the first time so you know what the drill is check them out check out also if you are in la you want to try martial arts a friend of mine has just opened a gym uh, i'll put a link in the episode notes you do get a discount if you mention the drunken Taoist podcast savannah is trained there training there with her the pro team in the morning there are classes for everybody at all levels so check them out and speaking of martial arts thank you so much to the sweet folks of nevertapgear.com i'll put a link in the episode notes they make knee braces ah. that help make sure you don't screw your joints up while you're rolling in jiu-jitsu or any other physical activity really i mean i use jiu-jitsu because that's what i do but probably for anything else uh, check them out. They're going to be getting a lot more products in the future. Right now, they focus primarily on the knee brace. Something that, I mean, I really think, I don't think I'm ever going to roll again without knee braces, just because why not? Keeps you safer. It helps. So, Spoken like an old man. Yeah, man. That's what joints do. The problem is, it's probably not a bad idea earlier, too, because the fact is you will damage them at some point yeah. in sports. And, you know, things like knee braces help you make sure you don't. I mean, does it affect your movement months or is it pretty? The ones they have, no. The ones they have, and in fact, I think that's the, the ones they currently have give you kind of the maximum protection without affecting movement. If you want more protection, which if you have really damaged knees, you may have to, they are going to be making heavier duty ones that will clearly be a little more restrictive movement wise but will also give you extra. So that's kind of a trade-off. The ones that currently is there, it's legal for jiu-jitsu competition. It's, so they barely, must be all fabric. There's not metal there. braces or anything like that. No, but they do provide a little bit of the brace for the place. kneecap yeah, and yeah. all of that. But yeah, if you want the hardcore stuff, I think they'll be doing it soon. And they'll also expand the range to elbow pads and other things like that. So check them out. These are sweet folks. Um, anything else we need to mention? I think that is the gig for today. You guys have a very good day. Au revoir. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. Maybe I don't want to hear this. No, you don't. <laughs> in questo cazzo, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, yeah? Oh, man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great. Fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. We've been no, having a great hour nice. here. Dun, dun, dun. Completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're outro. Oh, we're out. Okay, sorry. So that's so. Let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell can me. Can you about, translate for me, please? I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky.